0: with occasional bonus interviews with gallery owners, collectors of fine art, and art historians. Perhaps today's show will bring you the aha moment you've been waiting for. Welcome to Artists of New England with your host, Laura Castaneri-King. Today I'm really delighted to have Jerry Monkman here from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He is a conservation photographer, filmmaker, and writer. Welcome, Jerry.
1: Hi, Laura. Thanks for uh, asking me to do this.
0: Yes. Really appreciate it. So exciting. I've been really um, enthralled looking at your work and looking on your website and just discovered your Instagram, so that was fun. <laughs> um, but you've been in the area for a long time doing this work, uh, filming, photography, writing books. And uh, so give us a little bit of background. Just, you know, how did this start for you as a as a child? Were you... Were you in the woods?
1: Were you photographing? What, what was going on? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up as a kid able to play in the woods every day. Um, I grew up near Chicago, um, but near forest preserves, conservation land, farms, so I was always out getting lost in the woods. And um, it sort of defined my childhood and it kept me, I think, a sane kid, <laughs> helped me through my childhood. Oh, yeah. um, and then I, you know, Got a got an SLR um, for eighth grade graduation, and and just started playing with photography as a hobby. Um, I never really thought of it as an art form for myself or a job for myself and, and at were that you time.
0: Photographing nature at that
1: time. You know, I was. I didn't. I didn't even know what nature photography was. But right. you know, I take it on walks in the woods with my dog, okay. and I found a lot of pictures of my dog in the woods (laughs) when I looked through some old stuff at my mom's house. And, um, yeah. And then friends and, you know, and then, you know, as I got into the late teens and college years, most of the pictures were just of me and my friends doing silly things we did. Um, and then, yeah. And then after college, my wife and I moved to New England and started doing a lot of hiking and camping and spending time outdoors and, 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 And honestly, I never still didn't think of it as a career until I I had a job for about six months working at a store called The Nature Company um, at at a mall in Burlington, Massachusetts. And it was a store, you know, I spent my weeks in the mall, surrounded by books and art about nature and never got Mm -hmm. to go out in it that much. But um, while I was doing that, I met a photographer named Galen Rowell, who was a one of the premier mountaineers and adventure photographers of the 20th century. And he wrote for a magazine called Outdoor Photographer that I read a lot and um, met him and got to talk with him and realized, oh, this could actually be a career. So um, that's when the, I guess the seed was planted. And then you know, after that, I, I worked about 10 years as a software engineer, but always sort of working on my photography during vacations and um, and weekends when my wife would would go up into the Whites or Acadia and or vacation mm-hmm. um, out west. And I just learned the craft and and actually started selling photography um, and even writing uh, the guidebooks that we wrote um, mm-hmm. while I still did the software stuff.
0: Um, oh, you were? Okay.
1: Yeah. Was- until uh, till right after 9-11 and right after my daughter was born and realized I'd I basically had two jobs and a baby and um, couldn't do all three. And yeah. so I quit the job that paid the bills. <laughs> and
0: that makes the most sense. Decided to do that. the job I was I, passionate
1: about. Yes, and, uh, yes. You know my kids grew up with a I think a, a happier dad that way. <laughs> For
0: sure. And did you did you take um, the kids with you as they were growing up out on these adventures that you were using to document and make your books?
1: Yeah, definitely for the first, you know, until school age, um, we traveled as a family because Marcy was mostly working, my wife Marcy was mostly working with me on on the business and helping to research the books that we were doing. Wow. Um, so we did that, yeah, for probably three or four, maybe five years. And then it just got to be a little too hard scheduling wise with school and and Matt, and I started doing a lot more of the, the traveling and shooting on my own. Um, but, you know, we did until just a couple of years ago, there's 17 and 19 now, my kids. Um, but until just a couple of years ago, we, you know, would at least do one or two sort of nice big trips every year where we do some backcountry hiking to huts or backcountry skiing in the winter to main wilderness lodges and things like that. Oh my um, gosh, that
0: sounds so adventurous. (laughs) And with kids.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, so like the main, there's these, the Appalachian Mountain Club has these main wilderness lodges that are about, you know, a half day cross-country ski apart from each other. Wow. And I first visited them while doing a shoot for them, and my kids were real little then, maybe four and six, and
0: I met a family there
1: that had a eight year old and 11 year old and a 13 year old and they skied them all in and they were skiing wow. on them. Like, and I was so impressed. I'm like, okay, I guess like a couple of years I could <laughs> try it with my kids and they, they did great. You know, yeah. it's really kids are, they're pretty adaptable to that, yeah. that stuff. Um, and we, you know, we made sure to bring friends with other friend, you know, other kids the same age. So nice. You know, they couldn't whine too much around them. Right. End. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but like- yeah,
0: are there houses along the way if you, like, don't make it, if you're not going to make it to the next? How does that work?
1: No. <laughs> you no, just you're
0: just there.
1: You know be- how to, you know, get yourself out or hunker down till right. someone else passes by. Um, but, yeah, the first trip, the first winter trip we did with the kids, about a mile in, it started snowing really hard. And I was, like, thinking, am I a complete idiot for doing this? But, um you know, the trails are well-marked. I'd been there before. I knew what we were up against. and um, Marcy now, and I have a lot of experience and, have a, you know,
0: that we
1: did a lot of training on backcountry first aid and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of yeah had a clue, I guess.
0: Now, have you hiked the Appalachian Trail?
1: No. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, I mean, certainly lots of parts of it. Um, yeah, you know, Marcy and I considered doing it about, let's see, 1992, we were very seriously yeah. planning on doing it um, the following year. And then we spent about a week, on, you know, and we had done most of our hiking in the White Mountains and in Baxter State Park, which are probably the most dramatic parts of the entire 2,000 miles of the trail. And then we yeah. spent a week in the Green Mountains in Vermont with a friend who was doing it. And It was a lot of up and down without views and really hot buggy weather, sleeping in shelters with a lot of smelly people. And we just weren't inspired. I (laughs) I gotta say. So we, um, instead we took a five week trip to Alaska.
0: um, Oh, that sounds great.
1: And it was, uh, I don't regret that at all. (laughs) Did (laughs) you
0: ever ever read Bill Bryson's book when he hiked? Oh,
1: sure. (laughs) Yeah. Love that book. I know (laughs) it's, uh, it's definitely um, got its detractors in the Appalachian trail community, but a lot of fans too. And we, we were definitely fans. You gotta have a sense of humor about these For things, sure. I guess. <laughs> For sure.
0: So, um, let's talk a little bit about your books. You have 10 and they're, tell us what the subjects are and, um, just a little bit
1: about Sure. That. Um, so three of them are adventure guidebooks to the White Mountains, Acadia, um, Southern New Hampshire. That one's way out of print at this point. Um, but those are for the Appalachian mountain club. They were, um, they're basically guidebooks for if you want to hike, bike, or paddle in those places. Um, wow. and then, um, we did a photographer's guide to Acadia national park, oh. um, which is, you know, just where to go to take the best pictures in the park and when, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, we've done a, uh, picture, big picture book on the white mountains called white mountain wilderness. Um, as well as a picture book on Acadia called Wild Acadia. And both those books are, um, the first chapters are sort of a historical and then then and now kind of look at those places where I matched um, historic photos with present day photos um, and talk about the conservation history that created those places. Um, And then the the other chapters are just essays about um, different sort of habitat areas in, in in the national forest and the national park. Um nice. and then we've done a couple books about fall foliage in New England, including a uh like a driving tour guide to fall. Um is that it? Oh, and then I have one more, which is a uh guidebook to outdoor photography. Uh okay. that was also published by the Appalachian Mountain Club. Nice. Um, wow. Which cool. is that that was the last book, new book I wrote, and that's about eight eight or nine years old now. And it's um it's probably about half still valid and then there's a lot of technology that's changed since then sure. you know it was, a, it was a digital photography book but i think you know the software i talk about were probably on about 10 or 12 versions beyond those <laughs> softwares um, yeah. and the cameras have they've improved considerably um, there's some new features it's probably not that much different in fact you know the camera i was using even in 2004, the digital camera I used back then, I still make beautiful, you know, three by five foot enlargements from them, you know, that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the technology's improved in a lot of ways. Um, the biggest changes have been in dynamic range. So for shooting in low light, um, you have more leeway these days with today's cameras um, and you have better autofocus and, um, shooting speeds and that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, as far as like, you know, the, the sensors captured enough data back then to really make amazing prints um, yeah. even 15, 16 years ago. Wow,
0: so what do you use now? What are you currently carrying out there?
1: Yep, I've, uh, I've been shooting Canon digital cameras ever since I went digital in 2004. And right now I'm using uh, their 5D Mark IV digital SLR. Okay. And four or five lenses, different lenses. Nice.
0: So any catastrophes out there in the wilderness with your ear?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I've broken a few lenses, um, usually by falling or dropping them. Usually it's me falling because that's not an uncommon <laughs> uh, situation. Not, not uh, where you want. <laughs> yeah, I'm not falling off cliffs or anything. Oh, that's a good thing. I'm just <laughs> tripping and my camera will hit a rock and the lens lens will snap in half. Um, I broke a few film cameras back in the day, but um, I haven't done that to any of my digital cameras. I once was actually, I used to write for Outdoor Photographer Magazine and I was doing a review of a little um, rangefinder camera, film camera. And I was, we were hiking up in the, Mountains on the Appalachian Trail and uh, hiking from hut to hut with this camera and I slipped and fell with it. I had it on the tripod and it smashed on a rock and the the door broke off. You know, today cameras don't have doors, but then you had a door to put the film in, close the door, and I was able to actually duct tape that door shut and make it lightproof enough that I still was able to use it for the rest of the the hike. But um, yeah, the manufacturer wasn't, terribly psyched, because <laughs> it wasn't my camera. Oh, no. Oh, gee, hey, well,
0: well. <laughs> they've got to do of those things, I'm sure, but... Yep. <laughs> wow. So, um, when which came first, your love of photography, or your desire to, you know, to get into conservation?
1: Um, boy, they kind of developed together, together I think, yeah. honestly. Um, you know, I was always... know conscious about the environment in college and and soon after but didn't necessarily think too much about it other than you know sending a check now and then to an organization Um, but then when i decided i really wanted to pursue photography and specifically outdoor photography as my career i really wanted it to mean something um and Got involved with the conservation community here in New England and started reading about some of the conservation that was happening here, specifically in the, in northern New England at the time. Right, and that really inspired me to start reaching out to organizations and okay. learn, you know, what what could I do from a, a photography standpoint to help their their goals of, of conserving uh, the northern forests in northern New England, and that was kind of how I got started with that and then ended up getting an assignment or two. And I was pretty much hooked and mm-hmm. haven't, haven't looked back.
0: <laughs> good, good. And, and when did it kind of in, begin to include the filmmaking?
1: So that was about 10 years ago when Canon came out with uh, their 5D Mark II camera, which was the first SLR camera to really make shooting HD video, super easy and also a really nice um, quality as well. So have, being able to shoot both video and stills with one camera was really helpful for me because I didn't like carrying a lot of extra stuff. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, I never really thought of video as, as a direction I wanted to head. Um, but once I had a button that I could just push on the camera I was already using, I started playing around with it. and. <laughs> And I realized some of the voices of the people in the conservation stories I was photographing would, would be really interesting to actually hear as well, as opposed to just seeing, seeing these folks. So I started just experimenting and, and making some little three and four minute video pieces on some of the projects I was working on. It um, kind of went from there.
0: Wow, that's cool. So you've done um, on your website, which is really great, by the way. Uh, nice and easy to navigate. And you've got a Thank lot you. of links to um, in different interviews and even another podcast you've been on and, you know, <laughs> TV and all this stuff. But um, you've got these little movies that you've made on there. Um, and tell us about those. What was the first real significant one that you did?
1: Um, boy, I don't know how to define that exactly. But I yeah. guess the one... The one that sort of impacted what I do the most was uh, about seven or eight, eight years ago, uh, My one of my clients is the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. And they contacted me and asked me if I'd heard about this issue they were working on called Northern Pass. And I'd heard a little bit about it. It was a proposed electricity transmission line that was going to um, come from Hydro-Quebec. Um, 140 miles through this, the center of New Hampshire. And so we started talking about that and they convinced me that the power line was a bad idea. They were kind of leading the fight against it. And they asked if I'd be willing to, to try shooting a few little three minute interview snippets that they could use as part of their campaign to um, help convince people that this was not a, a great idea for New Hampshire, mm. excuse me. Right. Um, so I think we did five of those in, in 2012. And by meeting some of the people that were going to be affected by this project, I realized there was, you know, it was, a, it was a subject that had a lot of rich subject matter and a lot of emotion tied to it. And I decided to just take a flyer and, and make an hour-long documentary film about this on my own um didn't really know what i was doing or how to do it i used kickstarter and um raised about thirty-five thousand dollars to self-fund it which still wasn't nearly enough but um but i then spent about uh three months in 2013 filming going back interviewing some of the people i had met before and um and a whole bunch of other people and creating an hour-long film out of it. Um, so it was that sort of, it was more like the people I met during that initial project that inspired me to take on a challenge to tell the story in a, a more complete um, way. Because to me, the, you know, the I was hearing a lot of, you know, so the people in the that were being af- directly affected by Northern Pass who lived where this transmission line was going, we're very aware of it, very much against it, we're very vocal. Mm. But I realized people like here where I live on the seacoast yeah. didn't really know much about it. They heard about it, weren't that concerned about it. But I knew that places that we here on the seacoast love to visit were going to be really negatively impacted by this. So I thought it'd be important to make this film and do it in a way that sort of highlighted my style of landscape photography. Um, <clears throat> to talk about the landscape in a way to talk to people from outside the direct um, impact area to kind of get um, get people behind stopping this. Um, right. And yeah, it took seven years, but uh, yeah. it finally uh, the state- Kiboshed. <laughs> shot him down, and that was only the second time ever the state had uh, not approved uh, an energy siting project. So it was- yeah. It was a big deal.
0: Yeah, used to feel great about that.
1: (laughs) I honestly did tear up a little. I didn't realize I was so, uh, (laughs) you know, by the, you know, by the time it got denied, it was five years after my film, four years after my film had come out. So, you know, I was on to a lot of other things. um, Yeah. But yeah, there was a lot of emotion tied up in there for other reasons, too. I actually... Was diagnosed with cancer right as I had wrapped production, and and wasn't actually able to finish the film for another year. Um, While well, I recovered, um, which I did, you can see I'm here. <laughs> I'm healthy. I'm five years, five and a half years cancer-free now. But um, yeah, yeah. you know, there was a year, 2014. Thank you. Um, but there was a year I really couldn't work. I was too sick to work. Um, and even you know, I basically spent about two hours every couple of weeks I had about two hours worth of energy to try to edit the film. Um, and that was it. Um, so, but once I, once I was uh, off the chemo and I had one more surgery, all that stuff, once I recovered from that, um, finishing the film felt great.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. What a way to end it. Right. What a way to, to I know. And answer.
1: so I, so I wonder, you know, how much of my emotion was the, you know, Northern Pass being defeated and how much of it was just, I had all these other, yeah, you know, life meaning, life meaning kind of sure. things wrapped up with that project. Sure. Um,
0: and, and how did that movie get out and presented to the public? You know, where was it distributed for people to?
1: Yeah. So that one was, we kept pretty local. So we did, you know, we rented theaters. Um, so we probably showed it in 10 or 12 theaters. Um, we showed it twice here in Portsmouth, once at 3S and at the New Hampshire Film Festival. Um, but yeah, we showed it in Boston and then, um, you know, Concord, all up and down um, the corridor where Northern Pass was happening. So those are great because we'd have uh, discussion afterwards and it really um, helped people understand and ask questions about. What was going on. And then um yeah, no, it was just I made it online, you know, available online. Um after a couple of months. We we had it, you know, it was basically a pay per view on Vimeo for a few months and then we just made it available to everybody. Um and, you know, you know, not a it wasn't a bestseller, but <laughs> I can't say thousands of people saw it, which was kind of exciting. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it made quite the impact that uh... Hoping for, I think, <laughs> seemed like
1: I yeah, I like to think it had a it had a hand in in the end result. Yeah, yeah. But there were so many people that really worked very hard on that. So.
0: Right, and another one that you've done. Um, well, I loved the one about the uh, urban gardening down in Boston. That was that's near and dear to my heart anyway. And my sister lives down there, so I sent it to her right away. <laughs> I was like, ah. She posted yeah. it on Facebook. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that that was really great. Um, I do hope that movement's continuing down there as well now.
1: So the, the urban farming was a, a really fun project. It wasn't a long project, but um, <laughs> I've done a lot of work for an organization called the Trust for Public Land over the years. And um, in addition to protecting, you know, 10, 000, tens of thousands of acres at a time, sometimes in uh, the north country here, they they also have a parks for people program where they do a lot of work in cities Um, Mm -hmm. and they they helped um, the urban farming institute in boston um, acquire land and and start farming and and now that that organization the urban farming institute has i'm not sure probably at least a dozen sites in dorchester roxbury Mm -hmm. and mattapan um, and including their main site is in mattapan and it Old, it's a house from the 1880s that was actually a farmhouse when there was <laughs> an actual farm there, wow. um, you know, 150 years ago. And so it's kind of cool. Um, yeah. And, you know, and part of why they do it is to help inner city folks learn how to create a business growing food, which isn't something they've had. The opportunity to even see, let alone learn how to do, yeah. um, but also there, you know, there are food deserts in that part of Boston where you can't easily get fresh produce um, without having to, you know, drive or take the tea um, mm-hmm. long distances. So part of their mission is to, you know, just bring fresh produce to the to the local neighborhoods. So it's mm-hmm. to me, it was a really compelling story. I met some great people, and actually. Been talking with them this year, so hopefully we'll we'll do some more work down oh, there. Oh,
0: that soon. would be great! Yeah, I love that. Um, and then the Merrimack River, the river at risk. That um, boy, that's a long process. That's been going on for a long time. But um, I think <laughs> yes, but, this time you'd introduced drones to your to your movies. Is that correct?
1: Right. Yeah. So the uh, the Northern I Pass film.
0: Yeah, because I know you you had a hard time sure. reconciling the fact that that you did kind of <laughs> need to use them. <laughs> Right?
1: Yeah, so I guess you have read my blog posts. Um <laughs> so yeah, you know, the the Northern Pass film, part of what I did there was learn a new sort of technology for me, which was these you know, long time lapse using these computerized dolly track systems in the backwoods. So um yeah. there's several really nice time-lapse sequences in that film. Um and yeah, I'm, and now I'm thinking this Merrimack film is, I'm looking at it, and it's definitely going to be my drone, <laughs> my drone film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so when drones first started getting popular, probably four years ago, I was definitely curious, because, you know, it's gear, it's fun, it's, you know, it's kind of cool flying stuff around, but at the same time as a wilderness advocate, yeah, um, I'd encountered them sometimes in places where I didn't think they were appropriate um, because they do detract from the wilderness experience. Um, So I decided I didn't want to get into them because of that. I didn't want to be one of those guys, (laughs) you know, um, and I've been, you know, and since then, you know, the national parks have banned them from national parks. And, you know, there's been a lot of rules created that, you know, the culture's starting to learn some etiquette and things like that, right. although not totally. But um but then I just realized, you know, some of my clients were starting to ask if I could do some drone photography as part of projects. And um and I know I lost a few jobs because I didn't do that. Mm. Um, so I decided, okay, let's get one and see what it's all about. And I had a friend who had an old one, so I didn't have to spend a lot of money. And um and then I realized they're amazing tools, especially for a lot of the conservation projects I work on. Yeah, um, because they give you perspectives that some, sometimes you just can't get. Um, you know, I, I loved part of what I loved about my photography was finding those little sort of hidden landscape spots where you can get those dramatic landscape wide views of places that other people might never find. Um, but as I've been doing this for 25 years now, the places being conserved, the, those kind of views are getting smaller and farther and harder to find even um, yeah. on some of the big projects I do. So the drone gets you up and gets you those views anywhere, basically. Um, so they become super helpful. Um, and now I don't have a job. I almost never have a job where a client doesn't ask if I can use the drone as part of it. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, I'm very cognizant when I'm flying that I'm not going to be interfering with someone else's enjoyment of what they're doing in the outdoors. Yeah, um, They're are so
0: loud. I mean, you'd think that they'd be able to make them a little quieter.
1: They're definitely getting quieter. Um, the one I had, I bought a new one um, last fall and it's definitely is it probably half, half as noisy as the one before and they're, they're starting to sell replacement props that are even quieter so they're they're learning that um honestly I like hearing the noise because it's easier to keep track of it sometimes when you know you know I'm supposed to keep you know a visual line of sight on it at all times but Mm -hmm. sometimes you you just you lose it for a split second and it's really hard to find so I use my ears um so Yeah. yeah but um but I just you know I just make sure I don't fly it when there's other people hiking or paddling, trying to do something where they're out in the wilderness. Um, right. Unless they came out with me and they know what they're in for, which, <laughs> you know, I do. You know, we you know, definitely have filmed and take photos of people on mountain bikes and people in kayaks and canoes and people hiking um, just yeah. to get that unique perspective. And, um,
0: so, so have you done two films for the, um, for the Merrimack?
1: About the Mar- no, no. So we've been working... Yep. So we're um we're releasing the Merrimack River at risk um actually next month. So it's gonna uh we had planned on showing it in some theaters this spring, which obviously yeah. we've had to change our plans. Um, but it's gonna uh premiere on New Hampshire um PBS on uh July twenty third. So that's oh exciting. nice. July twenty
0: yeah. third, that's cool.
1: Yeah. So um so they liked it immediately when we showed it to them. Um, and yeah, I don't know why they wouldn't. It's a really a great look at the Merrimack River, both in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, the whole watershed basically. Right. Um, and we decided to make the film four years ago because it was uh, listed as uh, one of the 10 most endangered rivers in the country by American rivers. and um, that was based on some studies the U.S. Forest Service had done a few years ago, mm-hmm. so we thought, okay, I bet nobody knows this, <laughs> yeah. and we also so and this is with um, also with the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. So they're over in Concord, so they have a you know deep connection to the river because it actually runs right through their property, um, sure. and they also realized that you know there are hundreds of thousands of people who live or cross over the river every day in Manchester, Nashua, Lawrence, Lowell, Haverhill, Newburyport, and probably don't give it a second thought and don't realize how much they rely on it for things like clean water. Um, And the fact that it is at risk because of um, development pressures in the Valley, because it's that whole, like, it basically follows um, 495 and I-93 and that's, you know, there's a lot of development going on there. So, um, so we wanted to tell the story of, you know, why the river's is important um, to just everybody who lives there um, and the value of conserving land to protect the,
0: um,
1: the water in the river. Right. So, um, so having a drone is proven invaluable for that too, because, right. you, know, you know, it's a you know, relatively flat part of New England. And we could just get some really dramatic perspectives um, of the river um, in places where it's more rural, but also in places like Lowell, which is, you know, very urban, um, very historic place that um, has used the river for, you know, almost 200 years now. So, um, yeah, it's fun. But, you know, I did crash it once during filming and had to get a new one. So that's twice I've done that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's, and there is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of drone footage in the film for sure. Yeah.
0: The, the trailer's really great. Um, if there's a way that I can load that or just I'll put the link to your website on mine and the, everybody can get Thanks. there that way or they can go straight to ecophotography.com. Um, yeah. Cause it's right there, right? The trailer is on there and
1: yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I'm working on a new trailer, but We'll
0: see. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think what's on there is, is the release date,
1: right? So, right, um, yeah, so we just learned that. We haven't okay. actually, I don't think we've publicized it yet. Um, I think that press release is going out next week, so you should be fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, yeah, that, so, you know, I think that many New Hampshire people are generally aware, you know, of conservation and try to do their part. So I, I wonder, you know, is there something, you know, besides writing the check to your favorite conservation group? What, what kinds of things would you recommend being somebody who's, who's out there all the time that maybe they're not thinking of? Is there anything that comes to mind?
1: Um, You know, I think, you know, two things. One, I think, just getting outside more (laughs) is important um, because you will value the resource. But I think, you know, when I started 25 years ago, my goal was to just protect more wild places for, because I love nature. I thought, you know, I found it inspiring. I know people find solace in nature. It helps them heal mentally in so many ways and physically in other ways. And I thought the more of that we have, the more healthy wildlife ecosystems we have, the better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, things have changed a lot in twenty five years. you know we talked about climate change back then and we're working towards trying to find a way to help mitigate it or stop it. Um, but now we're at a point where that is kind of an overarching problem that we all need to take seriously um, and you know part of you know why we need to conserve in a place like the Merrimack River Valley is to be able to adapt to climate change better. Mm -hmm. Um, So the river, you know, we're gonna see, because we haven't, you know, we're not gonna stop climate change at this point. We can still hopefully mitigate its effects if we take action um, to limit its negative consequences on us. But we're gonna have a period where we have more rainfall, um, heavier rain events, things like that. And by conserving forests, that protects the water quality um, by reducing runoff and things like that. Um, Forests also take carbon dioxide out of the air and um, help limit um, global warming that way. But, you know, for me, I think it's about taking political, you know, electing the right people at this point. I think we can make personal choices. um, But as someone who decided to be a vegetarian 25 years ago to have less impact on the land and, you know, try to drive more fuel efficient cars and things like that, I really advise, know, I didn't save the world by doing that. (laughs) And, you know, we can't convince everybody to take personal responsibility to do this. It's just not going to happen. We need to act as a society. And to do that, we need to elect officials, both on a local level and um, state national level that will actually take this seriously and, and, and pass legislation that will encourage us, encourage our economy to convert to a more carbon free um, economy in ways that are, you know, sustainable. Um, And I think it's possible. I think, you know, it's not a either or situation. It's not, we can have, you know, clean air and a cool climate and no jobs or to have jobs. I don't think it's, I don't think it's like, right. That. I think it's not, I think that's a, a false uh, dichotomy. So, um, but we definitely have, you know, a tradition of electing a lot of people who get into power who um, are not concerned about this issue and are more concerned with um, protecting Fossil fuel interests than um, other things, so yeah, that's what I would say too. you. Um, you know, it, it's great if you send money to the Forest Society or sure. to the Nature Conservancy and things like that too. They definitely need your help. Um, but we need to we need to put the political pressure on as well.
0: Right, I, I totally agree, and I totally agree with getting out because if they are out more, they're going to you know. And I think under the recent circumstances, I think people have in their small areas, been able to get out more and explore, you know, what is, what is this little trail down the street? I never knew if that was there, you know, um, and sort of get out there and connect with nature and it becomes more meaningful. They, they realize, you know, oh, we don't want this to go, but, but your footage with the drums is really incredible. Um, it's just, um, it's really breathtaking. And I would, I would, gosh, to see that on a big screen would be, you know, really cool. Because it's areas (laughs) that we know, right. It's areas we know and we see them. We say, Oh, wow. You know? So I think that's for me, you know, significantly different than going to the Omnimax.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited to see it on a big screen one of these days. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely get it there. I was hoping we could maybe have a, uh, Theater premiere at the New Hampshire Film Festival this fall, but they've decided to cancel the festival this year. What so that's that's venues? too bad.
0: Are any outdoor venues available?
1: Yeah, we're looking around. We haven't figured out yeah. anything quite yet. Um, yeah, now my wife and I are talking. We're like, we'll put a big screen on the top of the parking garage and <laughs> drive up and do that. So you know. <laughs> It'll happen eventually, one way or the other. Um, But, you know, going back to what you said about, you know, during this pandemic, people are getting outside and having to appreciate things locally. And um, for me, conservation is always, you know, it's been about both protecting these sort of big, big wilderness areas like we have in northern New England, but also the, you know, smaller local preserves. And I've always felt that it was important to have places close to home, but it's been, just reinforced with me a couple of times. One when I was sick with cancer and couldn't travel mm. all year like I was used to doing. To have a place like Odeorn, Odeorn State Park, five minutes yes. from my house, mm. to just get out in the woods and sit on a rock and listen to the waves for a half hour was so helpful and and key to you know just my mood and um, keeping me from getting depressed while I was I was sick. Um, and now the pandemic, I think you know, so many people are. Are learning this not because they're sick, but because they don't feel comfortable traveling, or they're not allowed to travel based on what some of the state's rules are, um, and they're realizing, wow, it's really awesome that they're sick.
0: They're sick of being in.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're it's being like forced to go. <laughs> but having you know, having a place like place like Fort Foster in Kittery or Urban Forestry Center here in Portsmouth, or, yeah. you know, similar places up by you, Mount Mount Major, and you know. Um, It's so important to be able to do that right right from home. And I, you know, I've, you know, a few years ago, I I started feeling like it's actually, you know, our moral obligation to provide access to parks to everybody um, without them having to, you know, travel for an hour or two hours or three hours um, because it is, you know, so important for both physical and mental health.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, um, now that I'll be a permanent resident by the end of the summer down in Northampton, I started looking at all the little tiny places that, I mean, I'm always at the beach, you know, when I'm down there, it's the first thing in the morning, I'm down there, and I always say to myself, how come nobody's here? I mean, I'm just, you know, it's so <laughs> empty. This is beautiful, the sun's right, you know, whatever. But um, finding all these little tiny pockets that, you know, even being in the area for 10 years, just not living there, I haven't had the time to explore, so Really excited about some of those little little places to go hide and paint, but um, yeah, yeah. So um, I found out last night on a, a Zoom call that you teach <laughs> from someone <laughs> who took took a class.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I have taught in the past. I haven't for a few years. Oh, um, okay. okay. But yeah, I did. I led uh, like destination workshops for about. about a dozen years to Acadia, the White Mountains, Cape Cod, uh, the Green Mountains. But um, yeah, that part of my business, I kind of cut that out um, after my my cancer scare. Um, I liked it, but it was also, it was taking time away from my family that I didn't enjoy. My other jobs, I could kind of you know, travel during maybe school days when the kids wouldn't necessarily notice I was gone and, and things like that as much as, you know, these workshops were, you know, four days, five days, um, over the weekends a lot. And I was doing, you know, 10 or 12 a year at one point. So it was getting the point where I felt like I was starting to miss out on my kids a little too much. So I cut those out there. Like I said, 17 and 19. So then, yeah, I might bring that back into my life. Um, once uh, they don't want to see me anymore.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> you're almost there No, And then it only lasts, it only lasts for a short, short time. Yeah. And then they want you back again. So, uh, what about like making videos of yourself and doing some teaching that way? Have you ever considered that or?
1: Um, I did a bunch, so if you go on my, probably, I don't, I don't think it's, they're almost 10 years old now, so I did. Uh, okay. I think I have about a dozen videos that I did on YouTube, like how to videos uh, based on my, my photography guidebook that I put out about 10 years ago. And they're still, people still look at them. <laughs>
0: nice. How bad. Yeah,
1: so, yeah. So they have tens of thousands of views, some of them. It's kind of shocking.
0: Yeah.
1: They didn't sell any more books. I guess I taught everything in those videos. So no oh, to buy the book.
0: That's it. You can't. You just give them a little <laughs> snippet and then send them to the. To the link. So um, I did see on your Instagram you were in Europe last year, a month after I was.
1: (laughs) Oh, cool. That was a wonderful trip.
0: (laughs) How long were you there?
1: We went for two weeks. Um, So we thought my daughter was graduating from high school. We thought we'd take a nice – we also had enough air miles to get us all there for free. So that was kind of the original. I didn't realize how much we'd spend after we got there. (laughs) Oh, I know. Your your fare was free. Um, Don't drink water. Yeah, but it was great. We spent um, five days in Paris and then we, we did some um, hiking in the French Alps at Chamonix and then in Zermatt in Switzerland and then we spent a few days in Venice and it was yeah it was great. I was curious how it would go because you know our, we hadn't done a long trip with our kids since they got to be older teenagers and a little used to not hanging out with us um, right. and our kids don't our kids like each other, but they don't hang out together. They're not like in the same friends group. Yeah. So I had no idea, but um, it was great. It was just like the last couple nights we were kind of yeah yeah we could go home now
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you know, I saw that you were you hiked and you got some beautiful shots of the Matterhorn. <laughs> I, I'm so yeah. impressed. I was like, oh my gosh, he hiked up there, <laughs> like close enough to get those shots. Uh,
1: most of those we we took the tram up and walked around. So
0: oh, it's
1: not, it's not that hard. <laughs> I will say the two bet the two best meals we had in Europe were at restaurants we had to hike to, um, one in Chamonix and one in Zermatt. And I don't know what it, I don't know if it was the altitude, yeah, <laughs> or the fact we hiked up there, but yeah, <laughs> just amazing, amazing food. <laughs> I think it's
0: both because I went yeah. to um, see the the butterflies in Angangueo in Mexico. We 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 also didn't hike twelve thousand feet, but the last <laughs> you know the last bit was quite a hike, and when we came down, I think I never ate food that tasted more delicious in my life after that. Yeah, so good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, some of of the, we left, it was probably almost about a year ago this week or next week, so I'm starting to, you know, Facebook and Instagram are starting to show me those pictures. I know. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'd love to be there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did a, a two-week trip, too, and um, it was just really amazing. But, yep, I love it. So um, let's ask, what does success mean to you? I always ask
1: my guests this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, for me, I, you know, I've never been comfortable with the artist label because I really – I definitely got into this – more for the <laughs> conservation conservation part of it so to me the success is you know seeing my work have an impact and seeing the places that I get to do my work um, become conserved and be part of the you know sort of long-term landscape of places people get to um, take their kids and yeah. spend time outside you know I've been doing it long enough now that You know, I take my kids on hikes and I, you know, don't even think about it. But then it's like, oh, you know what? This was just, this was private property 20 years ago. And then, you know, we did this project. I got to take pictures here and help raise the money. And, you know, now it's, you know, a place where people go and bring their kids. So to me, that's success. Um, So, yeah, that's really. Yeah, that is it. (laughs) If I could pay pay the bills, that's good, too. (laughs) secondary
0: yeah. um, so how about uh, any funny or maybe scary stories of being out there i mean what if, do people think you're out there you know that guy playing with his toy when you're doing the drone or does anyone ever ask uh, you something
1: you know oh well, you warned me about this question i should have <laughs> thought of something um no i i I don't know, I guess I've been doing it so long, everything seems pretty normal to me most of the time. Mm-hmm. I, but there are times, because I, I do shoot in places that aren't open to the public yet a lot of the time. Okay. Um, and sometimes, and I always have permission, right. um, but sometimes the people there don't necessarily know I have permission, and oh. they get a little angry at first. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
0: I'm here to help we, you. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: until we until we talk about it. Um, yeah, I had a guy who was hunting with, so he had a, he had his rifle and everything, and he was really mad at us. Until, you know, until he figured out who we were, and then he was really embarrassed. But um, so there's that. Um, now, you know, I I worry a lot about getting stuck in places when I'm by myself, um, and I've gotten a couple flat tires that were a little challenging in, you know, Maine and spots. Um, Thankfully, you know, I lived a pretty charmed life. I've seen bears, but they've never bothered me, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Now I've, I've, you know, I guess the, you know, one of the more stressful moments with the drone besides when I've crashed them was uh, I had one lose radio contact Oh no once, and they're oh, gosh. they're prog- they're programmed if that happens to fly back to where it started
0: okay
1: um, so I was hoping that would happen <laughs> and um, but there was about 30 seconds where there was I had no idea if, oh. what it was doing or if it was coming back or <laughs> oh. if it had crashed or anything and um, but then it did come back, so I was very happy about that but, Oh, great. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm kind of boring with that stuff. So my wife, when I was first starting to work professionally as a photographer, we took a, a five-week trip to Alaska, and part of that trip, you know, it's really, I feel like, where I cut my teeth um, on wilderness photography because I'd never spent that much time dedicated to just shooting every single day, sun up to sunset um, in in wild places, and um we did a, we, we got a backcountry permit at Denali National Park for six days. Um, and by the fourth day, we had seen eight grizzly bears. <laughs> and uh, we decided we just were like, didn't want to camp anymore. <laughs> um, but we so we had to walk, hike through the night. We hiked about 18 hours to get back wow. to the park road. Um, and it was amazing because, I mean, we, we didn't see any bears during that hike, but we saw caribou, and doll sheep, and year falcon, and eagles, and, and it was June, so we weren't quite above the Arctic Circle, so the sun did set, but it never got dark. So, we, you know, it's one in the morning, and we had to ford the Toklat River, this big glacially fed river, you know, up to our waist. Um, wow. It was ice cold and, you know, and all this stuff. And then we we finally made it to the road. We just kept walking on the road until, so in in
0: Tenali National
1: Park, the Park Loop Road cars aren't allowed to drive past a certain mile point 14. So you have to wait for a school bus, park school bus to come pick you up. (laughs) So we knew it would be there by eight, around eight in the morning. So we just kept walking for a while. And then we just kind of passed out on this hill overlooking the road (laughs) The bus came and picked us up and we were relieved. And then the woman, first woman in the first seat said, oh, did you see that bear that was sitting on the hill about 50 feet behind you? <laughs> these were all grizzly bears. <laughs> and we just said, uh-huh. you have to be kidding me. So
0: <laughs> Gosh.
1: That was probably the most adventurous hike we ever did. I'd yeah.
0: yeah. What do your kids think of these stories?
1: I don't know. They don't. I don't believe in anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One day they'll be showing the grandkids sitting there. They'll, they'll be saying, yeah, yes. I don't know. You know, I
1: think they appreciate what I do. They aren't really that interested in paying a lot of attention right now to it. Um, but I think they appreciate it and they understand it. And, yeah. um, you know, my oldest definitely loves, still loves being in, being out hiking and in and the outdoors. And, um, Um, I think my youngest will come back to that stuff (laughs) eventually. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't know what they're going to end up doing. I don't know if they'll be into, who knows what they'll be into. That's right. They're smarter than me. So
0: (laughs) Aren't these kids? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, Jerry, it's been wonderful having you on. I really appreciate it. Is there any last bit of advice you want to give to our photography friends and buffs (laughs) out there?
1: Uh, Just uh, do what you love and persistent and
0: mm.
1: try not to be too serious about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well we'll probably see you around.
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Inst- good luck oh, with the move. Oh. Before
0: I let everybody go, your website is um, ecophotography.com, correct?
1: Correct. Eco oh. photography. Yeah.
0: And uh, Instagram is that the same or is it
1: um- uh, Instagram and Twitter are my name. So Jerry Monkman, all one word, um, Jerry with a J. All
0: right. So. <laughs> That's great. All right. For being on.
1: Thank you. This was fun. All right. Stay safe. Be well.
0: Thanks. You too. If you found inspiration from today's show, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and share it with a friend or two on social media. Also, take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes or share your takeaways from today's show on artistsofnewengland.com under today's episode. And while you're there, you'll find links to the topics mentioned in today's show. And don't forget to peruse the growing library of podcasts and resources. Thanks for listening. you got beauty to share with the world that no other human has. So get in the ring and pick up that brush.